Hey church family, it's good to be here with you this morning and open God's word. I'm excited about it. Uh, we've got a lot of material to cover and trying to do it in a short amount of time, so let's go ahead and jump right in. Uh, we have all had an experience in life where there was an encouragement given to us where if not heeded, it would lead to some, some dire circumstances. You know, we've all heard them, don't touch the stove, it will burn you. Or uh, don't pull the dog's tail because he will bite you. Uh, don't put a fork in the light socket, duh. Or even in a positive tone, exercise, eat healthy for better health when you're older, try to sidestep some medical problems if you can. Or do go on trips for the sake of the gospel around the world, but don't eat street food and get so sick that you need emergent medical care. Uh, I've done that, and it's not a good look. Overall, the point is that there is an encouragement given to us and followed by a list of warnings. Coming from a loving parent or a friend, it is an encouraging motivator to do what is good and to steer clear of the detriments of what come from not adhering to the advice given. That, in a nutshell, is what is happening here in today's passage, Hebrews 12, 14 to 17. There is an encouraging command given, followed by a list of warnings. I wanted to break this down, this passage, down to an elementary level for us this morning. It's a, sometimes a very difficult passage to work through, and so I wanted to bring simple clarity to what Scripture is teaching us today. So we're going to do our best to do that. And with that framework of encouraging command and warnings behind it, I want, to, I want you to press pause on your video in just a second and do a few things before you come back and press play. It won't take long as we're only looking at four verses here today. Okay, the first is that I want you to read the passage two times out loud. If you're with people, have two different people read the passage out loud two times. If you're by yourself, of course, read it out loud to yourself two times. Second, I want you to then close your Bibles and try to retell the passage as best you can in your own words. Okay, this actually helps, helps us practice orality and it roots the passage down into our hearts. Uh, even if it's not the exact words that are on the page, that's totally okay. Third, I want you to pray. So if you are watching this with others, uh, in light of me winning our family's sprint competition this past week for the millionth year in a row, uh, the fastest person in your family uh, gets the honor of bringing others before the throne of God. So third, pray. After you do these three things, press play, and we will see what we can learn from God's word together and how that comes to bear on our lives right now. Amen. Remember the beginning of the chapter when it says, Fix your eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross. So that is where I want us to start, is at the cross. From there, we'll move out to these verses and see how the cross affects these things that we will cover. We'll do our best to follow the path of the cross. And as we do that, we'll see four things about the cross of Jesus. We will see that the cross is where peace and holiness are secured, where grace was won, where purity and reverence were affirmed, 
and where repentant salvation was bought. Okay, you've read the passage twice now and repeated it uh, to each other or to yourself, so let's dive right in and look at each verse and its corresponding point. Uh, You see in verse 14, Pursue peace with everyone and holiness. Without it, no one will see the Lord. Okay, look back at just last week's verses that Tim taught us. Discipline, right? You remember that word from last week, discipline. Though at times is very painful, very hard. We, it will actually yield a peaceful fruit of righteousness is what the passage tells us. And these believers are being exhorted to pursue that peace with everyone, even in the midst of their suffering and persecution that they are experiencing by the hands of others. Now that for us and for them does not mean that we seek out discipline and suffering to the contrary, but those things are promised to come in the previous verses. And as they do, they will yield a peaceful fruit of righteousness in our life. So as you gain understanding of peace more and more through the trials that you live through, you begin to pursue it. You pursue peace. That is not a passive pursuit or a passive statement made here in the verse. It is not just a peace with those whom are peaceful with you, but a pursuit of peace with everyone. Now, I do want to say this. That does not mean that you will actually have peace with everyone. However, let that not be the case because of you. If you remember in Romans, Paul tells us in Romans 12, 18, if possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. There are at times, as was the case with these believers that we are reading about, that if you live in pursuit of holiness and to honor Christ in all things, people will reject you. They'll reject you, your peacefulness, and they will revolt against you in differing levels of severity. Yet, the charge remains. You do not return hatred for hatred, but pursue peace with all. You are called to a righteous peacefulness, not hate and despise. Not only is there a call and encouragement to peacefulness, but to holiness. Okay, this is key for us because this is something that a lot of times we don't take very seriously these days, sometimes at all. We think that holiness is only something far off. It's something that is attained when we reach heaven and are eternally before God and his holy presence. Now, it it is that, but it is much more than that too. Scripture is very clear about this, and that holiness is something that is supposed to be lived in the here and now as well. There are a host of verses that would testify to this truth. Just some of them, for example, Ephesians 1.4, For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. 1 Peter 2.9, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession. 2 Corinthians 7, one. 
So then, dear friends, since we have these promises, let us cleanse ourselves from every impurity of the flesh and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Romans 12.1 Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Believers and followers of a holy God are called to be holy themselves. That is not a, it's not a pipe dream. It's a command given to wholeheartedly pursue. You see, holiness abhors sin. It is not just a, a dislike of it. So I want to ask you this morning, do you abhor the sin in your life? This is a waging of war against it, not an apathetic glance towards it. If we are to, back up in verse 10, share in God's holiness, what does that mean? For God hates sin. Do we hate our sin? That is what this passage makes clear. No one will see the Lord who is not holy. Holy is to be set apart or consecrated. So we are not just set apart from evil and sin, but we are set apart to God. We are consecrated to God. This is true holiness, and without it, no one will see the Lord. This week, I couldn't help but think about uh, the word harem. If you are familiar with that word, it's a Hebrew word. Uh, many times throughout the Old Testament, most applicably to us today, I think, is uh, when Joshua is going into the Holy Land, and, and God tells him to harem the people that are found in the land of Canaan. That harem means devote to destruction. When God told Joshua to lead the armies through and devote to destruction everything, that's what type of worship that we want to have. A devoted destruction as a worship to God is what harem means. And we want to have that in our life because God is holy and we harem our sin. And it's there that we see the beauty of the cross. Hear me. Peace and holiness were secured at the cross. Coming from the victory of the cross, peace is pursuable and holiness is attainable. Not perfection, that will be brought on at our entrance into heaven or at Jesus' return, but an honest pursuit of that holiness, that consecrated life lived to the Lord. We live holy lives. Jesus secured your ability to be able to do that. Pursue peace Pursue holiness actively. 
after the commanding encouragement of this peace and holiness, there are these warnings that are marked out by two make sure statements. The first one, obviously, here in verse 15. Make sure that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up, causing trouble and defiling many. Don't fall short of the grace of God because... These people, the context of the letter, they're in danger of becoming apostate, turning back towards the Jewish law and trying to earn their status before God, revert back to their old ways. This make sure is not a, it's not a reversal of grace. It's actually a loving lift towards holiness, a call to endurance. Remember, this is a letter to a church Uh, to people that love one another, that are there to lift up one another and to abhor sin and run towards God's grace together. So don't fall short of the grace of God. Don't fall back into trying to earn your place before Him. I will say that those that uh, are in ministry, those that serve different ministries in various capacities have a much higher danger of falling into this. When works validate you or you feel validated by them, you are falling short of God's grace. You are taking part in the law, earning your status before God, or so you think. And these believers were dangerously close to falling back into that same line of thinking. So I want to ask, is not having uh, ministry programs, initiatives, events, is not having those for you to serve bringing about a sadness of missing the body or bringing about a feeling that you are not right before God because you're not doing them? If you feel that way, you might be falling into a place of losing sight of His grace and your lostness without His grace and only it alone. And bitterness can also creep in, which is basically the absence of grace, is it not? Make sure you are basking in God's grace, which will hold you from joining hands with bitterness. How can we pursue peace with all and pursue holiness, but have bitterness in our hearts. I want us to see what bitterness brings forth from an Old Testament text. Almost the same wording is used here, actually, uh, I think in the Septuagint, based in uh, Deuteronomy 29. So I'm going to read a section to you, just two verses, Deuteronomy 29, 18 and 19. And this is, this is them. Be sure there is no man, woman, clan, or tribe among you today, whose heart turns away from Yahweh our God to go and worship the gods of those nations. Be sure there is no root among you bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. When someone hears the words of this oath, he may consider himself exempt, thinking, I will have peace, even though I follow my own stubborn heart. This will lead to the destruction of the well-watered land as well as the dry land. You see, in this text, 
and I wish I could read so much more around it, God is not happy about the bitterness coming in to his people and what that does and what his response to that bitterness is. Bitterness loves division. Bitterness feeds on dissension. It causes isolation. It shores up hardness and stubbornness. And there's no peace and no holiness amongst it. In our current life context, I wonder if this coronavirus and being at home in so many different ways has caused any bitterness in our hearts. Bitterness towards God for a multitude of reasons or for having to homeschool. How is your marriage? Spouses are around each other a lot more these days. Is there bitterness that you are allowing to take root and cause division? Bitterness towards even one of these things does not just draw out bitterness uh, into your heart for that one thing, but it actually spreads. It is like a virus, like a sickness in our hearts and spreads to other areas. Not only in your life, look at the text. It defiles many. Others are hurt. They're discouraged. They're drawn into bitterness as well. Where bitterness is, division is with it. Again, marriages, ministry partners, family members. Are you resting in God's grace? Do not fall short of God's grace. And extending that grace to others? Or are you in danger of living in bitterness? But how does the cross inform this? Hear me. Grace is distributed through the cross. Coming from the victory at the cross, grace reigns and legalism and bitterness die. And amen for that. The next make sure that we see is that there is no immorality or irreligiosity in you or among your church. Now the word here for immoral in the Greek is the word Pornos. I won't explain that word to you. You Greek scholars out there probably understand what that word is in the English and where we get that root word, pornos. But there's a strong charge here. Okay, If one is to be holy, they must rid themselves, and even in this context, rid their gathering, their church, of immorality. There's something here for us today. We've all heard in recent years about the sexual misconduct that has happened in churches, seen it in the news, but I want to tell you it is not just in news stories, but in the homes. A Forbes article from just a couple weeks ago stated that since the quarantine status started in March in the U.S., those viewing adult content on a daily basis was up already 12%. Please do not be so naive to think that that is only in those that are outside of the church taking part in such immoral acts. There is no striving for peace with anyone 
while simultaneously objectifying human beings in their most intimate settings. Even if they are the ones putting it out there, adult websites, adult movies, etc. would love nothing more than for you to fatten their pockets during this time. But you are called to be at peace with everyone as long as it depends on you. You are to be holy. Regardless of what peace means to them, you know that peace means valuing them as a human created in the image of God and not turning them into your pleasure. So as far as it depends on you, pursue peace, pursue holiness. Now, scholars debate whether or not this pornos, this immorality, was written to be in connection with Esau or not. However, honestly, for our time together, I don't know that it matters a ton. You see, in the Old Testament, God consistently warns against sexual immorality, and He uses it as a word bank to speak about turning away from Him multiple times. He goes so far as to say that Israel committed adultery with other gods. Read the story of Hosea and God's command for him to chase after Gomer. It's a stark example of how adulterous, shifty, and wicked Israel had turned her back against God and her covenant bond with him. And consistently, those adulterous acts are linked to irreverence, irreligiosity, godlessness. Some translations say in your verse here, irreverent. Some say godless. Some say unholy. Regardless of what word is used, the thrust remains the same. Do not trade your blessing, your holiness, your peace, your devotion, your allegiance, your praise, your obedience, your fellowship with God for a bowl of Cheerios. Not just Cheerios, of course, inject your favorite meal. The point, obviously, in this text is not the meal. In every translation, the translators were clear in getting the Greek right that Esau had traded in his blessing, status, and devotion to God for a single meal. Esau was more worried about his sensual pleasure, his carnal appetite, than he was about the promise from God given to Abraham in which he was a direct recipient and he traded it all away for a a measly single meal. Freely given a place of grace and blessing before God as Esau did? Nah, I'm good. I'm hungry. See, Esau had an inheritance given to him and a place of prominence in the economy of God, and he squandered it. How many things are we capable, us, of rejecting our holiness, our place with God for carnal pleasures, emotions, feelings? I'm hungry. So I'll take part in gluttony over and over and over again. I'm tired, so I won't crack my Bible open for weeks except on Sundays. I'm mad 
at that person for what they did to me. So I will stew in bitterness about it, and I am justified to do so. I am aroused, so I will objectify other humans and seek out that type of content. Or I'm a bad person, so I will try to live by my works and not by grace. I am fill-in-the-blank with whatever our excuse for why we are not pursuing a shared holiness with God and are trading it in for unholiness. This is ungodliness. Trading in our love for God for something that does not matter. Something carnal, something fiscal, something sensual, an action, an emotion, a passing platitude. When we openly and willingly trade in the eternal for the temporal. But there's good things here because there's a cross, a cross of Jesus Christ. And how does it overlap with these things? Hear me, purity and reverence are perfected at the cross. Coming from the victory of the cross, immorality and irreligiosity fail. Jesus has made a better Way. He was tempted with what you are tempted with now, were last week, and will be next week. And he has shown the way to holiness and perfected it through his suffering on your behalf. Fix your eyes on him. That is how the cross is intersecting with us today. Esau is analogous to these behaviors, especially that of irreligiosity, but he regretted his decision, right, to revoke his blessing of birthright. He regretted it to the point of tears even, but he never repented of it. There's much debate here on the wording and how that plays out doctrinally, but the promise or the premise remains that there was no repentance on Esau's behalf for his ungodliness. And that is a warning for us. We ought to be a people that live a life pursuing peace with everyone and pursuing holiness. That leads to seeing God. Heeding the warnings given to us in this passage. A life of disregard for the things that have been mentioned is a deadly road that leads to hardened hearts that may regret their sins, but ultimately never repent of them. John Piper sums this final statement up well in this verse when he says, Esau tried to repent and could not. He had gone too far. God will forgive all genuine repentance no matter what you've done, but there is a hardening against God that goes over the line and can no longer repent. And this is meant as a very sober warning. There is such a difference between regret and repentance. Don't be fooled. Regret is dissatisfied with the outcome or consequence that comes from prior actions. Man, I regret doing that. I wish that didn't happen. Repentance, though, pursues peace and holiness. Repentance bathes in grace and stands in unity 
with others. Repentance battles for purity and harems sin and bad religion and apathy. Repentance knows that the straight path comes from the cross. Not only do people of repentance come to the foot of the cross, but they also remember that it is the cross that has come to them. Jesus came down and battled before you and made a way. And the audacity of the gospel is that you didn't have to do anything. To earn that place before God, he did all the work. He shed all the blood that was needed to be shed. He took all the wrath of God, bore all the sins, and redeemed all the people that call on his name for salvation and look to him as King, Savior, and Lord. This passage is still in this massive sectional motif of endurance and perseverance. The writer is asking his readers to not be sucked back into the world, not be sucked back into the world or sucked back into obeying the law, but turning to Christ and staying their eyes fixed on him. It's a hearkening back to Hebrews 4.1. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. This whole book ties together. Jesus is better. He is the mediator of your salvation. He is the great high priest. He is the source and perfecter of your faith. He endured such hostility from sinners against himself and the full wrath of God that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. We must remember these things about the cross. Peace and holiness were secured at the cross. And coming from the victory of the cross, peace is pursuable and holiness attainable. That grace is distributed through the cross. And coming from the victory of the cross, grace reigns and legalism and bitterness die. That purity and reverence were perfected at the cross. And coming from the victory of the cross, immorality flees and irreligiosity fails. And that true, true repentance begins at the cross of Jesus Christ. So how do we apply this specifically today? I actually, I want you to decide that. I want to allow some space for the Holy Spirit to convict, to encourage, and to guide in a different manner than we normally do right now. And that is going to depend on you. So this is what we're going to do. In just a moment, I'm going to ask you to pause the video and I want you to do five things. Okay, they won't take long. This won't take long at all. But I want you to do five things. First, having studied this passage, I want you to, as a family or by yourself, if you're by yourself, come up with two to three things that you see this specific passage tell us about God. Okay, what are those things? What does this passage say about God? Say them out loud, state what verse that tells you that, and write it down. Okay, next, second, I want you to come up with two or three things that this specific passage tells us about humanity. 
You could probably find more, both good and bad, but just do at least two things in this passage about what does it teach us about humanity? What do we learn about man? Say them out loud. State the verse that tells you that. Write it down. Okay, third, I want you to look at those things that you've just written down and how will those truths that you just wrote down change your life and how you will pursue living this next week? I want you to make this a measurable goal, not an abstract one. Okay, what I mean by that is don't say, uh, I'm going to read my Bible more this week. That's great, but you can't measure that. Say instead, I'm going to read my Bible for 15 minutes a day, five days over the course of this next week. That's something that you can measure. Okay, think of it as a goal and how you will live based on the answers to the first two questions. Write that goal down. Okay, fourth, I want you to pray. I want you to ask God for strength, for grace, for holy communion with him this week as you try to pursue in his shared holiness and the goal that you've written down, however the Spirit has led you. Whoever prayed to open up your time together in the Word today, that person choose the person to close your time in the Word today. And lastly, fifth, lastly, keep in mind this whole process could be as short as five or six minutes or as long as you want it to be, okay? It doesn't have to be long, but it can if you want. But last, after you pray and worship our Lord in the last song that comes just after this, pick out someone outside of your home to send your goal to. Okay? It could be anybody, but you could send them to me. I would love nothing more than to hear from some of you about what your goal is and actually send mine back to you. You can find my email on the website, lcfliberty.org. Uh, if you know my number, text it to me. I'd love to hear from some of you about what God is doing in your heart and your life and learn from that. If you're close to anyone on our staff, they would love to hear from you. Send it to them. Maybe you'd like to send it to your small group leader or someone in your small group. That's awesome. Do that. This way, we can all learn, love, and hold one another accountable to the grace that God gives us and towards the thing that He is calling us to and persevere and endure in our Christ word calling, which is a direct link to the purpose of this entire letter of Hebrews. Okay, so you can begin those five things now. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with all of you. Amen.